So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the June 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Simon Finney from the Unit of Critical Care, Biomedical Research Unit, Imperial College, Royal Brompton Hospital in London uh, within the United Kingdom. He'll be talking about his article, Modified Criteria for the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, Improves Their Utility Following Cardiac Surgery. Uh, Simon, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also joining us is Dr. Art Wheeler, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He'll be talking about his accompanying editorial, SIRS After Cardiac Surgery, Time for a Change. Art, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, let's get going. Let's, let's you know, for our listeners, let's make sure that they're just up to speed on, on some, some backdrop before we kind of launch into to Simon's uh, group's work. Um, could you guys define SIRS for us and the criteria for it, just so that everyone has that kind of framework as we then talk about, you know, modifying it? Uh, so SIRS was defined um, back in the 1990s, early 90s, um, as a clinical syndrome um, to, to describe a group of patients that we all cared for on the ITU that had um, what, systemic inflammation, and SIRS stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And it was just four very simple criteria which were defined that you could actually do in your head at the bed space, uh, which relate to abnormal temperature, either too high or too low, uh, a tachycardia, a respiratory rate or, uh, that was too high or associated with a low arterial tension of carbon dioxide, and then an abnormal white cell count, again, high or low. Um, and a, a combination of two out of these four criteria was meant to um, define uh, systemic information, and it was married up with evidence of infection to go on to define further things such as sepsis, severe sepsis, and ultimately septic shock. Terrific. So now that we have that backdrop then, then um, Simon, take us through, uh, define the issues here then. What was your group trying to accomplish? And, um, you know, if, if this definition has stood the test of time for all these years, why do we need to modify it? Sure. Uh, so, well, we were primarily in a cardiothoracic ICU. Um, and inflammation is kind of virtually ubiquitous following an episode of cardiac surgery. Um, it's actually quite an important clinical problem. Um, certainly relates to organ failure postoperatively, um, and the low vascular tone creates a need for vasoconstrictors, and it has all sorts of implications for coronary artery perfusion. Uh, so it's something kind of we battle with all the time on the ICU is information post-surgery and we were very aware that the SERS criteria exist and they've existed for many years um, but actually they didn't discriminate out a group in our mind that actually had important information because virtually every patient had fulfilled them so we kind of wanted to just reflect about actually demonstrate how easy it was to fulfill these criteria and then see if we could relate it to kind of some clinically meaningful outcomes in our heads. Um, so the way we went about this was we have a clinical information which system which collects all the data on the ICU about heart rate, pulse, all the things that uh, constitute the criteria. Um, and we just examined it in a, a large cohort of patients. Um, and I suppose that's what, uh, what our plan was. It was... Um, would you like me to expand on the results? Yeah, please. 
sure. Um, so I suppose we kind of confirmed our supposition, really, that um, so those criteria are um, how you apply them. I think people vary. Um, it's whether you fulfil the criteria concurrently or you fulfil one at different times of the day. And we we examined our data in epochs of one hour um, and looked, ex expected people to fulfil the criteria, or patients to fulfil the criteria simultaneously um, within that hour. And over the first 24 hours following an episode of cardiac surgery, um, it was virtually universal that some, everybody felt fulfilled at least two criteria simultaneously within an hour of that 24-hour period. Um, and our interpretation of this is that it doesn't meaningfully define out a group of patients who have clinically relevant information. It may define a group of patients who've got information, um, but clinically relevant being that it has some um, relationship to outcome. Um, and we looked at three basic measures of outcome. So we looked at mortality, um, per se, and then we were trying to get a handle on morbidity um, because information is kind of a multi-system thing. Uh, we used the SOFA scoring system, um, and then as a surrogate for morbidity, we looked at length of stay on the ICU um, because prolonged ICU stay is kind of a surrogate for uh, requiring further organ support um, and isn't specific to an organ system, so kind of reflected a greater intensity of input required on the ITU. So, so if I may interrupt for just a second, then if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, and to clarify, the, the, since pretty much universally your patients that were arriving postoperatively, uh, you know, from a known insulting event in time, they met pretty much universally the SERS criteria. It sort of diluted down if whether or not these criteria had any predictive value. And yes. if you could better tease out, um, you know, there was a, a, another a, another way to look at these this data and come up with a better plan to say which of your patients are defined at risk for bad outcomes. Is that that's ultimately what you were guys trying to accomplish? Yes, and I suppose. The ultimate desire is um, to be a little bit more customised in our approach to patients in, in the post-operative phase, and right. you may be able to target specific therapies to those who have more meaningful information, uh, whereas you wouldn't need to expose it to everyone um, if you knew that it was just a matter of course that they would get some information, then it would settle and not really relate to outcome. Right. Um, okay. Great. Please continue. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. Um, so uh, we then kind of wondered whether we could adjust the criteria slightly um, to make them uh, more meaningful or in terms of clinical um, outcomes. But we always kind of wanted to stay within kind of what the criteria were, and it was just how you applied the definition. Because uh, we were trying to do something that we thought you could still do at the bed space, as it were, um, in terms of assimilate the data. Uh, so we just looked at instead of having a threshold or fulfilling two out of four criteria, whether three out of four criteria or, or four out of four criteria, um, improved its performance in our cohort of patients. Um, and certainly it did change. It, it, it altered the sensitivity um, of the of the system and its ability to detect patients with a worse outcome. 
um, and improve the specificity over time. Um, and the way we kind of ultimately assimilated this or, or tried to describe its performance was looking at things like positive predictive value of the me measure and the negative predictive value. Um, but then we also went on to see if other slightly more complex permutations about duration of which uh, you fulfilled the criteria um, could also help describe. And I think that was quite novel. We had data for, uh, well, we had the data for the duration of the intensive care unit stay uh, on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. And uh, we hypothesized that uh, information that was very short and transient or the criteria that was met very briefly was less clinically important than that was, than that was sustained. And so we, we tried to bring time into our definitions. Um, and we, we then tried to model that um, or try and pick our best model uh, by splitting our data set into two, set, two, two sections. Uh, it was large enough to create a training data set and then have a validation data set. And we, we chose our best model on a randomly selected training data set, which was the bulk of the data, and then looked to see how that model performed on the validation set. Um, and that's when we came up with a, the modification of fulfilling two criteria for at least six consecutive hours. That's something that was relatively easy to um, spot if you just were to look at a ICU chart. Um, that had a slightly better predictive value for uh, the outcomes that we were we chosen to look at, um, and that's uh, kind of where we ended up. And I, I think the novelty from our, our our thing is actually trying to relate it to outcomes, um, and also looking at the temporal relationship of service criteria over time. Art, what do you think? Well, I love this paper. Uh, it was interesting to me when I first, uh, uh, at first blush, you read this paper, and as Dr. Finney said, you know, your first uh, impression is um, these investigators have confirmed what uh, all cynical uh, clinicians know, and that is <laughs> that, that almost everyone uh, in the ICU meets uh, two or more SARS criteria, and uh, and our good friend Jean Louis Vincent was right. Uh, SIRS is of little practical benefit, uh, and you know that's that's been the disappointing thing I think to uh, clinicians over time. That uh, and and again, as as I said in the editorial, you know the the um, the most cynical hyperbolic among us say something like, "I get SIRS when I play tennis," or um, you know uh, those sorts of things, but. Um, when you dig deeper into this uh, into this paper, I think uh, both the sensitivity and specificity are improved by looking at uh, these uh, hourly or multi-hourly epochs. And uh, the the really neat thing to me was um, not just these data, but I think actually this paper uh, points out a methodology that may be useful in a number of other settings. I don't. I don't think uh, Simon's uh, results are just applicable to a cardiac surgery intensive care unit. Uh, I, I think this sort of work, uh, especially now that we have electronic health systems that can capture this data, this sort of work in medical and surgical intensive care units uh, could be useful. 
it, these same sorts of uh, evaluations would be applicable to the, uh, the medical emergency team or rapid response team, uh, um, teams that are uh, widely deployed now throughout the world. And, and honestly, um, I think the average clinician at the bedside uh, could uh, figure out whether or not their patient meets two or three or maybe even four of the classical SERS criteria in the last day. But it actually does become a challenge to figure out, do, were, did they have two SERS criteria simultaneously? Is that third one still apply? Um, and, and we probably do need some computing help um, if the definitions are uh, to be modified to include a, a, another dimension of time, not just four components in two directions, but um, the, you know, their duration and uh, how many of them are present simultaneously. So I, I, honestly, I thought this was a really neat paper, um, and especially because for many of our cardiac surgery patients, uh, the outcomes are going to be excellent. We, we, we have low morbidity and low mortality. And uh, Dr. Finney's papers, to me, said, you know, there may be an opportunity here for us to identify the patients who are going to uh, have morbid conditions or die and to identify them pretty early in the hospital course. Uh, and, that, and then that gives us a population that we could study, an at-risk population where, where we might have an intervention. Uh, in the future, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know what he would say about that. Uh, you know, whether there's an intervention, but identifying the high-risk population is uh, then a group that we could actually look for events and treatments. Right. I was I, I was struck by I was struck by two very important things that came. That I think that you just highlighted as well from this paper, and one was that it seemed to be a, a terrific blueprint on how to conduct some other um, <clears throat> good research within the intensive care unit from just the collecting of all this data that, that you know, all of our monitors are automatically collecting anyway, and that also some minor computing modifications and you could add additional alerts to all of our monitors that already beep, you know, when a heart rate's too fast or a SAT's too low, um, there would be an additional type of an alert when someone does meet a modified SERS criteria so that it's not just the clinician calculating it at the bedside, the machine's constantly calculating it for you. I think that's exactly right. I do believe it's uh, we're always going to rely, well, I don't know about always, but I think for the, the foreseeable future, we're going to rely on an experienced clinician to interpret whether or not meeting the SERS criteria is important or not. Right. Uh, and having the thing alert you to go dig <laughs> has some value, too. No, I think that's I, exactly right. I agree entirely, and I think... Uh, what I kind of like in retrospect now I reflect on it is is the temporal thing because I think as clinicians uh, everybody uses the natural history and the time course very dramatically in their simulation of a patient and uh, to me actually it's the time I think that's quite interesting uh, I agree very much with you about it's the methodology applicability to other conditions uh, there's no reason the information post cardiac surgery should be the same as information following major abdominal surgery or pneumonia and other insults. Absolutely. And and you know, this has been one of the challenges as an investigator in a number of clinical trials of sepsis or an organizer. This has been a big challenge when you try to um, lay out simple inclusion criteria. 
where you say you have to meet three SERS criteria, they all must be present within a within a 24-hour window or whatever it is, uh, and then there also must be an infection present. That actually, as simple as it sounds on paper, is a daunting task to get right for a study coordinator uh, and sometimes the bedside clinician to just know, is there really, um, do they fall within these time windows? And oftentimes there's an argument, and I think your paper speaks directly to this, there's an argument that, these, that any kind of time window or concurrence is artificial and unimportant. Uh, and again, I thought it was one of the other beautiful things about your paper, that this idea of uh, how long and what things are occurring together um, may have a lot more importance than we understand. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's it. It was actually looking at the definition originally and just wondering actually how I was going to apply it to an electronic data set and that you actually realize the, the concepts of concurrence and time frames of all of the parameters. Um, along with things like white blood cell counts, which are only measured maybe once or twice a day. Oh, exactly. So, you know, the other thing, Kyle, that I really loved in this paper uh, was I think it contains a figure that, to the best of my knowledge, I've never seen in any paper before. And that, uh, Dr. Finney's figure one uh, that, uh, you know, starts out with, uh, I don't know, roughly 3,000 patients or 2,500 patients. And when you look at this figure and, and actually get a snapshot of uh, which of the SERS criteria are met at what times and then how the number of patients in the ICU is declining over that first seven days. Uh, I'm not sure that you can get any, uh, any better description of the, the natural history of SERS, at least in this population. Yeah, I think you're right there. I, I, was, I was very struck by that as well. Yeah, it kind of reflects what problems the patients who remain on the ICU are having that they fulfilled the respiratory rate criterion so frequently is a description of the ongoing um, burden that they have as time progresses. Yeah, I think the, uh, the other thing that's uh, really important, we always have some limitations these days in space or pages in publications, but um, one of the other things I would really encourage the reader to do is to go to the electronic supplement because there are some figures in there that I think are quite interesting. Maybe, Simon, you'd want to talk about this. There's some figures in there that are quite interesting that just um, just didn't make it into the print. Um, uh, and especially especially the organ, uh, the organ failure figure, I think, is, was the interesting one to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, so in figure two in the supplement, uh, we presented the data for uh, the, the six organ systems that uh, the SOFA score encompasses and tried to demonstrate how those evolved over time as well, uh, always remembering that the number of patients on the ICU is, is dropping as some are being discharged back to the ward. Um, and again, it, it, it did reflect uh, the dominance of the respiratory system um, in those first seven days um, and probably a reflection of the patients having cardiac surgery, the dominance of the cardiovascular system um, in the processes that were going on. I think it was a nice picture of the natural history of this, for sure. Um, 
when when you guys were defining at the beginning, um, was your the the discarding of the the white blood cell count from the the description was that purely just based on the fact that you would obviously not have continuous data sets for that, and it's not like you're going to draw a CBC every hour. Um, so we 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 said that um, the white cell count was valid um, for up to 24 hours, uh, unless there was a, a another result available. Uh, what we had to discard was the proportions of bound-form white cells, uh, which is a, a subtext of the search definition because we didn't have those data available electronically. Okay. And that's a, uh, that uh, that idea of the carry-forward, uh, the last value, is a, a pretty well-established one that, uh, you know, if if a clinician thinks something has changed, that they would get a new value for the total white count. So. It seemed like a totally valid uh, way to do this and a, and a practical way to not discard total white count data. Right. One of the things that was also struck just when you were going through was that younger patients and female patients met more SERS criteria post-surgery. Just any thoughts as to why that would be? Um, it's difficult. Um, Actually, cardiothoracic surgery is dominated by males. Typically, right. 60 to 70% of our admission proportions are, are males. Um, on both uh, sides of the scalpel. The recipients <laughs> yeah. and the deliverers. Right, yeah. right. Well, um, what is it? How many, how many men this year are going to die of stubbornness? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, but, um, but the sex differences um, is... It comes through another scoring system. So as a, a risk adjustment system for cardiothoracic surgery per se, uh, we have things like the Euroscore and the Euroscore 2, um, and females score more highly um, as a high risk. That's trying to predict mortality following um, surgery. Um, so it kind of ties in a little bit, doesn't it, that uh, the females um, had more organ dysfunction, had more serious criteria, um, and related to possibly a poorer outcome. I'm wondering also from the, from both your perspectives um, uh, if you had any opinions, hypothesis about the preoperative comorbidities and their effect on on this. Um, you know, I, I would I would I pessimistically will assume that majority of the patients undergoing cardiac surgery probably have the uh, some of the the big same disorders of high blood pressure and, and problems with lipids and plus or minus diabetes, so that that it wouldn't be clear to me that any individual comorbid condition would would have a direct effect because it would there, there would just be enough of it that the you know the law of averages would spill this out. But I wonder if if you all if you thought or if you saw trends that there was differing effects based on someone's comorbid conditions preoperatively. I know it wasn't something you specifically looked at. Yeah. I'm just, we, at now, this is one of those times where you guys get to both free form. Um, yeah, and we didn't have those data. I, they undoubtedly must impact, certainly on actually the values of the SERS criteria as well as the outcomes. Um, we're very clear on that. I think the other thing as well as um, pre the pre-operative um, conditions is the intraoperative processes that go on as well that can influence um, sales criteria. And so selection of um, pacing and things and heart rates could um, influence whether you met the heart rate criterion uh, irrespective of any inflammation you're going on. So 
they undoubtedly impact. Uh, I think it'd be very interesting to know how, how they do impact. And the, the problem would always be that uh, you could split your data set into such small components that you you would never have enough end numbers in it. But there's certainly some major conditions in terms of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and things that you could look at specific groups and the impact on certain variables such as respiratory rate. Yeah, and uh, I would say another, you know, in this population, another potential confounder would be, for example, the use of beta blockers. Um, so some of the therapies there. And I, I think, uh, although I, I, I don't want to get into sort of, a, you know, a, a list of limitations, I think if you, if you wanted to look at a list of limitations, one of the things I would say is that this particular paper, for the very reason that you asked, Kyle, um, it, other ICUs are going to have different populations, and right. so the, you wouldn't necessarily take away these rules and apply them to a different population immediately. So in a neurosurgical population where perhaps you don't have the, the same um, uh, degree of pre-morbid uh, cardiovascular disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you might have different criteria. And in a medical ICU where you have every pre-morbid condition present, um, things would also be different. So I think, it, it, to me, the idea of the pre-morbid conditions and the, the covariant treatments uh, suggest that these, these are probably ICU or, or type of ICU specific. I'd agree entirely with that as well. Um, it, it was a single center, and the, 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 the scoring system, could, we could have trained it specific to our uh, patient population. I wonder also, as I was thinking, the online supplement details, you know, briefly sort of the surgical methodology, um, and obviously uh, not doing any cardiac surgery, it does make you wonder. There's there's clearly differences in, in technique and on-pump, off-pump, et cetera. I wonder if, if your modified SIRS criteria and your natural history that you're describing, um, if there'd be... If, It'd be interesting to see this study replicated by a group that does cardiac surgery by a completely different methodology than, than your group and see if similar outcomes as a way to look at, you know, whether these surgical techniques, do they make a difference in the post-op period or not? Um, it'd be a one, one interesting way to try to examine that question, I think. Yes, it's actually something we debated at the time. Um, our institution is actually two hospitals, um, which are... Uh, the cardiopulmonary bypass differs fundamentally between the two institutions in terms of uh, we employ a roller pump, um, whereas the other hospital uh, generally employs centrifugal pumps. Um, and there's been long debate about the impacts on the outcomes of patients with the different systems. Uh, right. So, yes, you, you could, you, it would be really good to pick things like that apart. Um, and also the, the impacts of... Um, cell salvage and uh, what we do with shared mediastinal blood, whether we return it directly to cardiopulmonary bypass circuits or uh, wash it first. Right. It seems to me that, you know, again, I think, you know, you and Art both pointed out earlier, there's a chance to, to, to take this further with it from a methodology perspective and explore it both in other ICU settings, but also wondering about changes pre-ICU, you know, in methodologies, how they might impact uh, the critical care setting. It, it's, it seems like an interesting uh, roadmap that could be outlined here. Mm. Definitely. So, so 
one of the things we also, you know, we've been we've been talking for a while, and I want to be respectful of your guys' time. Is but um, I wanted to make sure there wasn't some other component of of your work or um, something else from the editorial that you know that we hadn't touched upon yet, and that both of you are, you know, itching to say and chomping at the bit to get out. If so, is there is there any kind of concluding thoughts or other things that you want to summarize that we just somehow haven't touched on yet? I don't think I particularly have any. I think for me. The interesting thing was the the temporal aspects of uh, systemic information. I, I think that's actually quite an interesting subject. We've talked quite a bit about that. Yeah, I, I I would agree, uh, Kyle and Simon. And the, I, the other thing I would say is, you know, the um, uh, when Roger Bone proposed these in in 1991, there there were great hopes uh, that the SERS criteria would be an early detection method for uh, inflammation that was common to a wide variety of diseases and amenable to to um, to uh, modification, and uh, that we never uh, we never realized that dream. Uh, but part of it might be that we just um, didn't have the right criteria. And adding this temporal component uh, to identify the patient who has uh, a particular phenotype of uh, inflammation resulting in vital sign changes that persists for a certain period of time, that actually, uh, I, I don't think it's the holy grail, but I think it brings us closer uh, to identifying a patient pop population in, in which um, specific interventions uh, could modify disease. And in this case, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a reasonably small group of the cardiac surgery patients, but they're the ones that account for a great deal of morbidity and mortality. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, we're all keen in personalised medicine, and we all sit on these huge data warehouses of physiological data, and don't really employ it as, to a certain extent. Yeah, I think there's a there's a there's a key value to this, and I think that that does summarise it very well. That that you know the the, the sensitivity uh, and specificity of the, or the lack of specificity of SERS was one of its issues, but that maybe we're getting going to you know, keep looking at it from this perspective and add another dimension to it, and this dimension of time, um, we're going to be able to then realize a, a patient population that would, you know, who knows what the target will be, but at least you can define a group that we know will have a worse outcome and now try to employ different methodologies to, you know, change that. And, and, that and, and I think what you had said it earlier, Simon, too, would be to not just say, okay, everybody needs drug X because it seems to help, but that we find this patient population is who needs drug X because it, you know, makes a difference and everybody else does not need to get exposed to it because their risk for, you know, morbidity and mortality within the post-op period is low because we have this predictive, or we have this ability to determine who's at higher risk or not. Um, that seems like a great opportunity uh, to, you know, to, to expand on your work and take it to the next level. Yeah, the, you know, the other thing, uh, Kyle, uh, sort of, uh, I guess my last comment would be, the other thing that I loved about this paper is, um, even though I'm somebody who uh, likes to do randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials, uh, and I think there's good information that comes from that, I, I think in, in many ways, uh, now we've gotten to the point that somehow we've uh, lost an appreciation of how much valuable information can come out of a careful analysis of existing data. Uh, 
and we're all now sitting on treasure troves of data from electronic health records uh, that you just need uh, a, a smart person like Dr. Finney and a good team assembled to do an expert analysis. Um, and you can find things in there uh, that we may be able to use to help patients by identifying these populations. And I, so I think it's, it's in its simplicity, there was great elegance um, and uh, I, I think it's a it's a model for for future research. Thank you very much. I I, I think the key thing is the hypothesis generating uh, exercises uh, for us to then move on from. Um, but the, the the size of the data set um, improves their validity, um, and and that's the key thing is is actually the volume of data we use. Perfect. Well, that's a, I think that's a, a great way to conclude it uh, on some really great thoughts. And, and both of you, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. This was, as always, this was fantastic. So I, I, I really appreciate it. Cool. Have a terrific day. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks